You know, this uh, New Testament book to the Romans, or we call Romans, is not really a book. It's a letter, a letter that was written almost 2,000 years ago by the Apostle Paul to the Christians in the great city of Rome. And Paul is writing to introduce himself to the Roman Christians. He's never been there before, and so he doesn't know them. He's writing this letter toward the end of his preaching missionary career, although he doesn't really know it at the time. But Paul has traveled and preached in many different places. But all of his life, he has dreamed of one day visiting the capital city of Rome, head of the center of the ancient world back then, and the dream of preaching the gospel in Rome. Another hope that Paul had on his bucket list, if you want to call it that, was to take the gospel of Jesus Christ to Spain. That was the growing frontier of the world back then. All the great artists and philosophers and thinkers and educators and leaders were all going to Spain. And so Paul wanted to make sure the gospel of Jesus also went to Spain. So he's writing to the Christians in Rome wanting their support financially as well as spiritually to help make his journey to Spain possible. Since he's never met them before, he's kind of introducing himself to the Romans, telling them about his calling as an apostle, telling them what he's done so far in his ministry, sharing with them his theology, which means his basic religious beliefs about God, hoping that they will agree with it, accept it, support it, and therefore support him on his hopeful upcoming mission to Spain. He is writing this letter also from the city of Corinth in the ancient world. And if you read the book of Acts about Paul's three missionary journeys around the Mediterranean Sea, he didn't stay too long in any one place, but in Corinth, he stayed almost 18 months. So he had plenty of time, was under no pressure to think through what he is writing to the Romans or to think through what you will call Paul's theology. Now, because it's a book of theology, let me tell you, it's not the easiest book in the New Testament to read and to understand. It deals with what the theologians call soteriology. And that's a great big fancy word, meaning the doctrine of salvation. And Paul has uh, several main points in his thinking about salvation. Number one, he talks about the sinfulness of human beings, all have sinned and fallen short. He talks about the work of Jesus Christ in saving us. He talks about the meaning of justification and sanctification. Now, I never heard those terms growing up in the Christian church, but I'm sure some of you grew up or have lived in churches where that's an important teaching, justification and sanctification. And then he also talks about the final destiny of human beings. But like I said, this is not the easiest book in the Bible to read and understand. So let me help you out, the kind of help I got in college. Here are the cliff notes of Romans. Three points. One, we were created in the image of God with God's laws written across our heart. And we were created to be good, not sinful, which means 
That's why I have trouble with the doctrine of original sin that we were created to be good. We, we have become sinful, no question about it. We fell, point number two, Paul says, even though we were created to be good, we fell to the temptation of sin and evil and it has gained control of our lives. And thus the third point, our only hope for release to overcome the control of sin and evil comes through Jesus Christ. We cannot save ourselves. And you know that probably from your own experience when you've tried to do the things you ought to do, but you've always fallen short. But let me get a little more practical in all of this uh, theological jargon, as I call it. And, and let me begin being practical by giving you an, an illustration uh, that comes out of history. I love history. And I think this illustration drives home the point that Paul's making. Uh, he's making it in theological terms. This will be in a practical illustration. Alexander the Great was one of the greatest military generals who ever lived. He lived in the fourth century and he conquered much of what back then was the civilized world. He, of course, was Greek and he began in Greece and then he conquered Asia Minor, which was the very center of civilization back then. Uh, Asia Minor is that peninsula of land between the Mediterranean Sea and the Black Sea that, that today we know as, as Turkey. Then he went on to conquer Persia, or what we know as Iran today. And then he turned south and conquered Egypt, where he established the great city of Alexandria. I wonder who he named that city after. Alexander the Great had future plans to conquer India, and then he wanted to conquer Arabia, but that didn't happen because all of a sudden he died at the young age of 32. Because he had engaged in such great excesses during his life of drunkenness and overeating, Alexander's body was weakened and he succumbed to malaria. Others say he was poisoned uh, in some of the wine that he was always drinking. But either way, he remains an outstanding example of a man who could conquer the world, but couldn't conquer himself. Or to put it another way, in the words of Jesus, Alexander was a great example of one who gained the whole world, but lost his own soul. And as Jesus asked, what good does that do? Or as we would say today, how's that working out for you? Aren't all of us engaged to some degree in the same struggle which took the life of Alexander the Great? What Paul calls in this letter to the Romans, the struggle between flesh and spirit. Paul certainly says that he was caught up in it. And can we not all relate to that passage of scripture that we heard a moment ago from chapter seven, where Paul describes his struggle. And as I read it again, can you not identify with it in your own struggle in life? He says, I don't understand myself at all for I really want to do what is right, but I can't. I do what I don't want to do, what I hate. I know perfectly well that what I'm doing is wrong and my bad conscience proves that I agree with these laws that I'm breaking, but I can't help myself 
No matter which way I turn, I can't make myself do right. I want to, but I can't. When I try to do good, I don't. And when I try not to do wrong, I do it anyhow. What he's describing and what you and I experience is the struggle between good and evil or sin and righteousness or what Paul calls in Romans and his other New Testament letters, the struggle between the flesh and the spirit. And to me, the flesh means the ways of the world. The spirit means the ways of God. We want to do what is right in life especially when we claim to be followers of Jesus. But the weaker side of our human nature causes us to fall short. And this struggle is revealed in so many ways and, and usually on a daily basis in the way we live, the things that we, we do that we shouldn't do and the things we fail to do that we ought to do. A typical example of how we fail in this struggle was seen in a recent study of how one's level of personal income relates to the importance of religion in your life. And the study clearly showed that as people's personal income increases, the importance of religion in their life decreases. And that's not hard to understand because when you're making more money, you can do more things that begin to compete with God and keep you away from church on Sunday, for example, or, or get your mind involved in activities that compete with the activities that directly to relate with God. And so Paul says in Romans chapter eight, those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the spirit set their minds on the things of the spirit. But then he goes on to say, pretty radically, he says, to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. And those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Whew. That's pretty complicated religious talk, isn't it? I told you, Romans is not easy to read and understand without some help. But let's review again what Paul means when he talks about flesh and spirit. When Paul talks about flesh, and again, you read this not only in Romans, but in lots of his other letters as well, he's talking about one or more of three different things. By flesh, he means the human body, and the desires and the pleasures of the body, especially the sinful ones. Or secondly, when he says according to the flesh, he means looking at things from a human or worldly point of view as opposed to God's point of view. Or third and most important, Paul had in mind the difference between a life that is obedient, faithful and pleasing to God versus a life that cannot please God and maybe is even hostile to God. By living in the flesh, Paul means sinful human nature apart from Jesus Christ and apart from God. For Paul, the flesh means everything that attaches us to the world rather than to God. 
or what Jesus called treasures on earth rather than treasures in heaven. To be more specific about living in the flesh, if you were to go to his letter to the Galatians where he picks it up again in chapter five, he says the works of the flesh are fornication, impurity, licentiousness, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, anger, selfishness, dissension, party spirit, envy, drunkenness, carousing, and the like. But then he goes on to say, compared to the works of the flesh, he says the fruit of the spirit in Galatians 5.22 is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. So you see, we're all involved in this struggle. We experience both things of the flesh or things of the world as well as things of the spirit. But the question is, which one is winning in our lives? The desires of the flesh are against the desires of the spirit. The desires of the spirit are against the desires of the flesh. They're opposites. We're involved in both, but which one is tipping the scale more towards the desires of the spirit or the desires of the flesh or the world? Furthermore, Paul says that the way of the flesh, if you follow that alone, will eventually and ultimately lead to death. I mean, you might think, wow, I'm really living it up. I'm having a great time in life. Life is good, how much fun is this? But it takes you further and further away from God. But the way of the spirit, Paul says, leads to fullness of life, not just now, because if you compare how people feel that are enjoying the ways of the flesh compared to the joy that people feel that are living in the spirit, there's no really a comparison. All of those in the flesh might think it's wonderful, but they have no idea how even more wonderful it is when you get more involved in the way of the spirit. But Paul says that continuing in the way of the flesh leads to not only physical death in this world, but not much more to hope for. But the way of the spirit leads you to fullness of life, both in this world and in the world to come, because not even death can destroy the quality of life that comes from living in the spirit. If this isn't true, then how can you explain that as Americans today, we enjoy increasingly prosperous and luxurious lives good things that we enjoy, the luxuries we enjoy keep getting better and better. And yet at the same time, the suicide rate, the depression rate, the addiction rate, the divorce rate, the heart attack and stroke rate, all these things keep increasing as well. As the pleasures of the world go up, and our religious connection with God goes down, it's very plain to see. Again, all of us are involved in both, but which one is winning with us? So how does all this affect you and me? Well, several years ago, a survey was taken of the American people that revealed that there were four things that most people said they couldn't live without. If I asked you what four things could you not live without, what would you say? Be interesting to know. But the survey reported back to people 
that the four things people said they couldn't live without were number one, their flat screen television, their iPhone, the internet, and Facebook. But God says to us that there are four things a Christian cannot live without, and that's prayer, scripture, worship, and meaningful loving relationships with other people. Now again, it doesn't mean that we don't enjoy both those iPhones and flat screens and meaningful loving relationships, because we do. But the question is, which one could you not live without? And which one is dominating your life more than the other one? The ways of the flesh, as Paul says, or the way of the spirit? You can make up an ongoing list of activities in your life that will test this. Some more uh, measuring questions we might add would be, which one is more important to you? Time every day to read the stock market report or time every day to read your Bible? Your home in Nashville, Tennessee or your home in heaven? The money that you use for God's purposes or the money that you add to your own portfolio? Your bank account or your spiritual account? Again, Paul says that living according to the flesh might make us feel pretty good and life's pretty exciting right now. Even though, like I said, it really doesn't compare to the joy you feel when you live according to the spirit. But living in the flesh has no ultimate or lasting long-term future. So which one's winning out in your life? Flesh or spirit? Now, I didn't share this at the 930 service because I thought on the average that congregation couldn't understand it. They're too young. <laughs> but back in the day, before we had all of this high technology we have today, you know, flat screen TVs with 6,000 channels on them, iPads, iPhones, and all that, there was not a button on your remote control that said guide. In fact, there wasn't even a remote control. Some of you young people find it hard to believe, but we actually had to get up out of our chair and go over to the TV to change the channels. But that wasn't too difficult because there were only three or four channels that you could change to. So how did you know what was on the different channels? There was a very popular little magazine that came out every week called the TV Guide. Do you remember that? And it gave you all the programming you needed for the week on TV. It even talked about some of the, the actors or actresses that would be in the different programs. And needless to say, that little TV guide was about as popular as any magazine that you'd get. So for those of you who remember those days, I want to end this morning with a little bit of verse that I thought was pretty cute, but it also drove home the point about flesh versus spirit. And it says, they lie on the table side by side, the Holy Bible and the TV guide. One is well-worn, but cherished with pride. Not the Bible, but the TV guide. One is used daily to help folks decide. Not the Bible, but the TV guide. As the pages are turned, what shall they see? Oh, what does it matter? Turn to the TV. Then confusion reigns. They all can't agree on what they should watch on the old TV. So they open the book in which they confide, not the Bible, but the TV guide. 
The word of God is seldom read, maybe a verse ere they fall into bed. Exhausted and sleepy and tired as can be, not from reading the Bible, but from watching TV. So then back to the table, side by side, lie the Holy Bible and the TV guide. No time for prayers, no time for the word. <clears throat> the plan of salvation is seldom heard, but forgiveness of sin so full and free is found in the Bible, not on TV. So again, I ask, which of the two influences is, is dominating your life more than the other? Living in the spirit or living in the flesh? Living according to the ways of the world and worldly thinking or living according to the ways of God and godly thinking? And how's that working out for you? <clears throat>